Well, in order to, in order to uh, prepare our hearts for communion tonight, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 provides us a description of not only the crucifixion of Christ, but what transpired before he was crucified, and I'm referring to the trial that he endured under Pontius Pilate. And I want to specifically look at verses 13 through 25, but in order to set the context for this, uh, these verses, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 23. So this is Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole body of them, this is the Sanhedrin that he was referring to, got up and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently, and Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. And now here's our text, verse 13, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he has sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner, but they cried out all together, saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. 
The trial of Jesus Christ was the most outrageous, horrendous miscarriage of justice in the history of the entire world. And as those living in America, we have grown accustomed to a flawed justice system. Donald Trump's indictment is the most recent example of that. Verdicts are issued every day in courtrooms all over our country that are totally inconsistent and they make no sense at all. But imagine if you picked up the newspaper or your tablet or turned on the nightly news and heard this particular scenario. A man accused of murder had been aggressively prosecuted to receive the death penalty. Yet after months of deliberation and after hearing all the evidence, the judge pronounced the man not guilty. The prosecuting attorneys went ballistic and told the judge that there was no way that he could let that man go free because he was such a great threat to society. Well, this had never happened before to this judge and it caught him by surprise and so he asked the court to adjourn to give him some more time to think over his decision. An hour later, he returned to the bench with a solution that he thought would appease the attorneys. He said, well, after reviewing the case further, I still believe this man is innocent. Nevertheless, I have decided to make him serve five years in the state penitentiary. To the judge's amazement, rather than appeasing them, his decision made them even more hostile and they insisted, this man deserves to die. And the judge was more confused than ever and he excused himself again to rethink the case and he was in a real quandary. He wanted to release this man because he was convinced that he had done nothing wrong, but he knew that he was risking his position and his reputation if he went against the angry attorneys. And so he had to come up with a compromise that would satisfy them, even if it meant laying his integrity aside. But while the judge was out of the courtroom, the prosecuting attorneys mingled within, uh, among the crowd and they stirred them up against the defendant. And so when the judge finally came back into the courtroom, the crowd was in a frenzy and he calmed them down and he presented what he considered to be a surefire solution. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll give you a choice. Do you want me to release this man or Jeffrey Dahmer? He had reason that surely no one would want a notorious serial killer like Jeffrey Dahmer running around loose, but to his dismay, everyone in the courtroom cried out in unison, release Jeffrey Dahmer. The judge stammered, what do you want me to do with this innocent man? They said, we don't care. Lethal injection, electrocution. We, we, We just want this guy to die. judge couldn't believe his ears, but he realized that the courtroom was out of control, and the last thing he wanted was a riot, so he gave in to the crowd and released Jeffrey Dahmer and sentenced the other man to death. If that verdict was handed down in this country, it would certainly produce national outrage and be considered the most unbelievably corrupt trial in American history. Well, this trial did take place, and this verdict was issued not in America, but in Israel. 
2,000 years ago. And the Roman governor, Pilate, sentenced Jesus Christ to be crucified and released a, a notorious criminal not unlike Jeffrey Dahmer. His name was Barabbas. Now, most Christians are familiar with that infamous character, but typically Barabbas is either briefly mentioned or passed over altogether in the account of the death of Christ. And yet, while Barabbas simply played a a minor role, you could say, in the drama of redemption, he served as the most profound picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. That's a fancy theological term, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which, by the way, is in much debate these days, surprisingly, and there's many so-called believers and even preachers and seminary professors who want to downplay the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and they will tell you that that's not why Christ died. Christ was not dying as a substitute. He wasn't dying in our place. He was standing up against the Roman government or something like that. And so we understand this this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ is simply this, that Christ died as our substitute. A substitute is a person acting or serving in the place of another. In other words, Jesus suffered in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins. He offered himself as a sacrifice to pay for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We already read that in Isaiah 53. Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 8, says it this way. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. And then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So the Bible clearly teaches this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And we see a beautiful picture of that here in the story of Barabbas, which by the way, all four gospels include this story. Um, The only other time Barabbas is mentioned in the Bible is in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where Peter referred to him in one of his sermons When he was confronting a Jewish crowd, he didn't mention his name, but everyone knew he was talking about. Acts chapter 3, verse 13 says, uh, Peter said this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. So, let me set the historical background here 
of this story of Barabbas that we see here in Luke chapter 23. As you know, after Jesus was arrested, he went before the Jewish religious leaders first who pronounced him guilty of blasphemy and condemned him to die. However, the Jews living under Roman rule had no authority to kill anyone. And so they had to present a convincing case to the Roman government in hopes that they would execute the condemned criminal. And so the religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate, who was the Roman governor uh, presiding over Judah at the time, and they laid out their trumped up charges against Jesus. And they accused him of being a political rebel who claimed to be the king of the Jews and was stirring up a revolt against Roman rule and was forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. That was their argument. That was their case. And they wanted Pilate to think that Jesus was a threat to him and the Roman government. And so after briefly cross-examining Jesus, Pilate was amazed that he didn't defend himself which in Pilate's mind proved his innocence, and so he pronounced him not guilty. He had found no fault in Jesus at all. There there was no evidence whatsoever to convict him and to crucify him. He was convinced that Jesus was an innocent man who deserved to be released, not crucified. He hadn't violated any Roman laws. He posed no threat to him or to Rome itself. In fact, the charge that Jesus was an insurrectionist bent on overthrowing the Roman government was was absolutely absurd. Nevertheless, Pilate was caught in a political pickle. And because of his past track record with the Jews, he had already done some stupid, evil things that had caused the Jews to hate him and revolt against him. He, he couldn't afford doing anything else that would infuriate them. He could lose his job. He could maybe even lose his head. And so he attempted a number of evasive moves to avoid any further conflict with the Jews. And so the first thing he tried was just to pass the buck to Herod, who ruled over the region of Galilee where Jesus lived. And Herod just happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, so Pilate sent Jesus to him and said, hey, he's under your jurisdiction, you deal with him. And you can see how Herod dealt with him in verses 8 through 12 there. He, he was, he, he just, Herod was a clown, and, and he, he, he clowned around with Jesus, making fun of him, mocking him, putting a robe on him and making you know, jabs at him about, oh, you're a king. Well, let's, let's make you at least look like one. But he sent him back to Pilate. And so now Pilate was running out of options. He was hoping that Herod would be the scapegoat. And now he was desperate to find some legal loophole that would enable him to release this innocent man at the, at the same time appease the Jews. Look at verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priest the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him, nor, no, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. That's interesting, by the way, that he says, I find no guilt in him, but I'm gonna punish him anyway. 
Pilate was hoping that the Jews would be satisfied if he just gave Jesus a good whipping before releasing him. But when that failed to satisfy them, he reluctantly resorted to, to the one final option that he had at his disposal. And it was the custom of the Romans that as a favor to the people over which they ruled to release for them any political prisoner they wanted to on their national holiday. And of course, this was the Jews' national holiday, which was what? Passover. Notice verse 17. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. Matthew expands on that. Matthew 27 Verses 15 to 17, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate thought this would surely pacify the Jews. And as the text says, the Romans had in their custody at the time a well-known criminal by the name of Barabbas. He was some sort of zealot whose fanatical uh, agitation with with Roman oppression had motivated him to take part in some kind of uprising against the government that involved robbery and, and murder. Notice back in Luke 23, verse 18, But they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. So Barabbas had been apprehended and sentenced to death. And at that very moment, sat chained in prison awaiting crucifixion. Now, Barabbas was the last guy Pilate wanted to let slip through his fingers. But I think the whole reason why he offered to pardon him in the place of Jesus is he was the last guy Pilate expected the Jews would want to be set free. I mean, who in their right mind would want a a criminal like Barabbas running around loose? But what Pilate didn't take into account was that the Jews weren't in their right minds. And he was shocked that when he offered them a choice between Barabbas and Jesus, they insanely exchanged their own Messiah for a murderer. Notice verse 20. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. According to Matthew, Pilate's wife around this time sent a message to him which said not to have anything to do with Jesus because he was a righteous man. And so as he was deliberating with his wife, and she was sharing the details of her dream that she had had, that gave the religious leaders time to persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas' release. We see that in Matthew 27, verse 20. 
It's interesting to consider what they may have used as an argument. Maybe it went like this. Hey, listen, how could anyone who's not considered a threat by Pilate or the Romans to be the Messiah? We all know the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah won't be a helpless prisoner, but a powerful leader who will overthrow the Roman government. Barabbas is more of a a Messiah than Jesus. And so in the people's minds, there was a lot of truth to this. They had all anticipated their Messiah riding into Jerusalem and taking over and establishing the Messianic kingdom. And now here he was, bound and at the mercy of the Romans. Which, by the way, the Jews despised the the oppressive rule of the Romans. So anyone who was arrested for any kind of insurrection became a patriotic hero. And so apparently Barabbas fell into this category. And the insanity of this, this whole thing was that the Jews insisted the release of a man who had committed the same crime they accused Jesus of committing and wanted him killed for it. Insurrection. And so Pilate's last-ditch effort to salvage this situation failed. And the more he tried to reason with the crowd, the more unruly they became and He had a riot in the making and that was the last thing he wanted, especially during Passover because this would get back to his authorities. And so Pilate caved in to the angry mob and gave the Jews what they wanted. Verse 24, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Again, Matthew records that Pilate performed a Jewish ritual in an attempt to exonerate himself of this great injustice. Remember what he did? He washed his hands, which was based on the Mosaic law. If the rulers uh, of a city were not able to determine the identity of a murderer... God provided that they could publicly wash their hands and, and, and pray to him and therefore for absolve themselves of any guilt regarding their inability to render justice in a particular case. And yet, like politicians often do, Pilate compromised his integrity for the sake of expedience. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty. He really wanted to release him. But in order to save face, he let a guilty man go free and an innocent man be killed in his place. By the way, that's the bottom line of the story of Barabbas. An innocent man died so a guilty man could go free. Jesus was literally crucified in the place of Barabbas. Jesus served as Barabbas's substitute. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, think about this with me for a moment. We know that Jesus was crucified on a cross between, what, 
two thieves. Mark said in his gospel that Barabbas was imprisoned with the insurrectionists. In other words, Barabbas was one of several men who had been arrested and convicted of robbery and murder, and it is probable that those two thieves who were crucified on either side of Jesus were two of Barabbas's co-conspirators or partners in crime. And so we could surmise that Barabbas had been scheduled to be crucified along with them on that very day. And what that means is that Jesus most likely hung on the very cross that was originally intended for Barabbas. By the way, this view is supported by a man named Alfred Edersheim in his classic reference work on the life of Christ called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah in which he implied that Barabbas was one of three men condemned to die that day. Now again, it's speculation. But it is interesting to consider Many years ago, I came across a, a little track. I've kept it all these years, and it was simply titled Barabbas. And it's a fictitious account, but a fascinating one nonetheless, to think about all this from Barabbas's vantage point. Let me just read this for us. Again, through Barabbas' eyes. He grasped the bars of his cell door as he heard the footsteps of the Roman guards coming down the long stone corridor. Sweat was pouring down his face, his sides down his back. He knew they were coming to get him. They would first whip him with a cat of nine tails. This whip had small stones at the end of the leather so as to tear the flesh off his back. Then they would nail him to a cross next to his partners in crime. He could not believe his ears. You are free, Barabbas. Pilate granted you a pardon. God only knows why, the chief guard grumbled as he approached. He removed the chains from his wrists and ankles. The door is open. Out with you. But woe to you if we ever catch you again. How could this be? He, Barabbas, a rebel and a murderer, had been set free? Suddenly he hesitated. Was this just another trick that Pontius Pilate had thought up? Could he really accept this pardon and walk out a free man? Just then, one of the guards said angrily, a man named Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is going to die in your place. I don't understand it. His only crime is claiming to be the promised Messiah, yet they let murdering scum like you go free. Now get out of here. Three weeks before, Barabbas and his band had attacked a Roman money transport and had killed five of the hated Roman soldiers. But something had gone wrong. Immediately, Roman reinforcements had appeared. Only he and two of his friends had escaped their avenging swords. The angry soldiers dragged them through the city in chains and cheered as they were condemned to die by means of crucifixion. But now, all that had changed. He still could not believe it. He was free. His two friends, however, would die today on a cross as scheduled, but there was nothing he could do about it. Still, he was driven to the place of execution. He simply had to see this man who was going to die in his place. 
Barabbas' two friends who were held in a different prison had already been taken away to Golgotha, the place of execution, so he began to make his way there. The crowds were so thick that Barabbas had a hard time pushing through. When he finally arrived on top of the hill of Golgotha, Jesus was already hanging on the cross. On either side were Barabbas' two friends, Eshtal and Reuben. All around him, he heard nothing but sarcastic and taunting remarks. You helped others, now let's see if you can help yourself. If you really are the Messiah, then come down from your cross. Even Eshtal, his friend, hanging on the left cross, shouted, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it, or are you a fraud after all? Reuben, on the other side, angrily yelled at Eshtal, don't you fear God even in the hour of death? The two of us justly deserve to be hanging here in agony, but this man between us has done nothing wrong. He is absolutely innocent. He then turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Barabbas could hardly believe his ears. His old friend Reuben, the proud, cruel, cynical, cold-blooded murderer who feared either man nor beast, called this man Lord in front of all these people? Jesus answered, I promise you that today you shall be with me in paradise. As he said this, darkness fell over the whole land, although it was high noon. Barabbas could not remove his eyes from the man in the middle. Blood trickling down his cheeks from the crown of thorns jammed on his head. His face virtually unrecognizable from the severe beating by Pilate's soldiers. The skin from his body hanging in shreds from the whipping. And still, wasn't there a glow in that face? As he stared at Jesus, tears came into his eyes, the first he could ever remember. This Jesus was suffering, was dying for him. Jesus was taking the punishment that he, Barabbas, rightly deserved. If it hadn't been for this substitution, he, Barabbas, would now be suffering the excruciating pain of a crucifixion. In the darkness, with only the flickering light of the torches bouncing off the crosses, his mind went back over his 42 years. What a disaster his life had been. It was a life of hate and violence ever since he could remember, and now another was paying the penalty for him, was taking the punishment that he rightfully deserved. He suddenly also remembered his beautiful mother who had died at an early age. She had read to him many things out of the books of the prophets, how they had foretold of the coming of the Messiah. He could still picture her as she read with shining eyes, but he was wounded and bruised for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was lashed and we were healed. God laid on him the guilt and sins of every one of us. But who among the people of that day realized it was their sins that he was dying for, that he was suffering their punishment? Isaiah 53. Barabbas suddenly realized that he himself was meant by this passage. That Jesus was suffering his punishment. He could never again be accused of all the crimes that he had committed because Jesus, by his death, had paid for all of his misdeeds, no matter how vicious, cruel, or sadistic they had been, the penalty for his sins had been paid in full. Now, obviously, we don't know for sure what happened 
to Barabbas after his release. Neither the Bible nor secular history offer us any clue as to how he was affected or how his life was altered by this incredible prisoner exchange. Did he return to his life of sin? Or did he become a follower of Christ? No one knows. But it really doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is how you and I are going to be affected or whether or not our lives will be altered as a result of this beautiful illustration of how Jesus died in our place and served as our substitute on the cross. Do you see the profound parallel here? You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. We all are Barabbas. All of us, like Barabbas, are guilty of insurrection or rebellion against God, and we are condemned to die. Romans 1, verse 21 says that even though we know there's a God, we do not honor him as God or give him thanks. Romans also says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin is death. We are all sinners sitting on death row, helplessly and hopelessly waiting for God's judgment that we rightfully deserve. But just like Jesus was condemned and crucified for the very same crime for which Barabbas deserved to die, he died for the very sins for which we deserve to die. And the good news is that if we're willing to turn from our sin and place our faith alone in Jesus' substitutionary death, we will be released from the penalty and power of sin and will be granted the hope of eternal life in heaven when we die. See, the choice available to Barabbas is available to us today. We can either turn from our life of sin in grateful acknowledgement of what Christ has done for us on the cross, that we would say, with Barabbas as it were, that should be me up there. I deserve to be on that cross, not this innocent man. Or we can spurn God's grace and mercy and continue living in our sin. What will you choose tonight? An innocent man died so that guilty men like you and me can be set free and have all of our sins paid for in full. That's the gospel according to Barabbas. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this story that is often just skimmed over, but it's so rich as an illustration 
of how Christ came to die as our substitute, to die in our place, to make atonement for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven by you and we could be made right with you. We could be reconciled with you. We could be restored to you and we could have the hope of heaven knowing that now nothing separates us from you and that when we do die, you will welcome us into your presence in heaven. Father, I pray that we'd never get over this great mercy that you have shown us in Jesus. I pray this in his name, amen.